Chapter number 16 of Six Years with the Texas Rangers, 1875 to 1881. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Six Years with the Texas Rangers, 1875 to 1881 by James B. Gillette. Some Undesirable Recruits. In the early fall of 1880, two well-mounted and well-armed men appeared at the ranger camp at Isleta and applied to Captain Baylor for enlistment in his company. After questioning the applicants at some length, the captain accepted them and swore them into service. One gave his name as John Red Holcomb and the other as James Stallings. Unknown to us, both these men were outlaws and joined the rangers solely to learn of their strength and their methods of operations. Holcomb was a San Simone Valley, Arizona, rustler, and was living under an assumed name. Stallings, though he went by his true name, had shot a man in Hamilton County, Texas, and was under indictment for assault to kill. These two recruits came into the service just before we started on our fall campaign into Mexico, after old Victorio, and were with us on that long scout. Although one was from Texas and the other from Arizona, the two chummed together and were evidently in each other's confidence. Stallings had not been long in the company before he showed himself a troublemaker. As orderly sergeant, it was my duty to keep a roster of the company. Beginning at the top of the list and reading off the names in rotation, I called out each morning the guard for the day. We had in the company a Mexican, Juan Garcia, who had always lived in the Rio Grande country, and Captain Baylor had enlisted him as a ranger that he might use him as a guide, for Garcia was familiar with much of the country over which we were called upon to scout. It so happened that Jim Stallings and Garcia were detailed on the same guard one day. This greatly offended Stallings, and he declared to some of the boys that I had detailed him on guard with a Mexican just to humiliate him, and he was going to give me a damn good whipping. The boys advised him he had better not attempt it. I could see that Stallings was sullen, but it was not until months afterward that I learned the cause. After our return from our month scout in Mexico, Captain Baylor received a new fugitive list from the adjunct general, and in looking over its pages, my eyes fell on the list of fugitives from Hamilton County, Texas. Almost the first name thereon was that of James Stallings, with his age and description. I notified Captain Baylor that Stallings was a fugitive from justice. Baylor asked me what Stallings had been indicted for, and I replied for assault to kill. Well... Maybe the darn fellow needed killing, replied the captain. Stallings looks like a good ranger, and I need him. Not many days after I heard this loud cursing in our quarters and went to investigate, I found Stallings with a cocked pistol in his hand standing over the bed of a ranger named Tom Landers, cursing him out. I could see Stallings had been drinking and finally persuaded him to put up his pistol and go to bed. The next morning, I informed Captain Baylor of the incident and suggested that if we did not do something with Stallings, he would probably kill someone. The captain did not seem inclined to take that view. 
In fact, I rather believe Captain Baylor liked a man that was somewhat on the prod, as the cowboys are wont to say of a fellow or a cow that wants to fight. John Holcomb soon found out as much about the rangers as he desired, and fearing he might be discovered, asked Captain Baylor for a discharge. After obtaining it, he took up his abode in El Paso. Not long afterwards, one morning at breakfast, while the twenty rangers were seated at one long dining table, Jim Stallings had a dispute with John Thomas, who was seated on the opposite side of the table, and, quick as a flash, struck Thomas in the face with a tin cup of boiling coffee. Both men rose to their feet and pulled their pistols, but before they could stage a shooting match in the place, the boys on either side grabbed them. I at once went to Captain Baylor and told him that something had to be done. He seemed to be thoroughly aroused now and said, Sergeant, you arrest Stallings, disarm and shackle him. I'll send him back where he belongs. I carried out the order promptly, and Captain Baylor at once wrote to the sheriff of Hamilton County to come for the prisoner. Hamilton County is 700 miles by stage from El Paso, and it took a week to get a letter through. There was no jail at Isleta at that time, so we were compelled to hold this dangerous man in our camp. Stallings was shrewd and a keen judge of human nature. We would sometimes remove the shackles from him that he might get a little exercise. Finally, it came the turn of a ranger named Potter to guard the prisoner. Potter had drifted into the country from somewhere up north, and Captain Baylor had enlisted him. He knew very little about riding, and much less about handling firearms. Stallings asked Potter to go with him out into the corral. This enclosure was built of adobe and about five feet high. It was nearly dark, and the prisoner walked leisurely up to the fence with Potter, following close behind with Winchester in hand. All of a sudden, Stallings turned a handspring over the fence and hit the ground on the other side in a run. Potter began firing at the fugitive, which brought out all the boys in the camp. Stallings had only about 100 yards to run to reach the Rio Grande, and before anything could be done, he was safe in Mexico. He yelled a goodbye to the boys as he struck the bank on the opposite side of the river. Captain Baylor was furious over the prisoner's escape and promptly fired Potter from the service and reprimanded me for not keeping stalling shackled all the time. Though we had lost the man, we had his horse, saddle, bridle, and arms. Stallings at once went to Juarez, and John Holcomb met him there. The fugitive gave his pile an order on Captain Baylor for his horse, saddle, and pistol, and Holcomb had the gall to come to Isleta and present this order. He reached our camp at noon while the horses were all in the corral. At the moment of his arrival, I happened to be at Captain Baylor's home. Private George Lloyd stepped over to the captains and said to me, Sergeant, John Holcomb is over in camp with an order from Jim Stallings for his horse and outfit. Gillette, you go and arrest Holcomb and put him in irons, and I'll see if I can find where he is wanted, ordered Captain Baylor, who heard what Lloyd said. Holcomb, seeing Lloyd go into Captain Baylor's, got suspicious, jumped on his horse, and left for a paso in a gallop. I detailed three men to accompany me to capture Holcomb, 
but by the time we saddled our horses and armed ourselves, the fugitive was out of sight. We hit the road running, and after traveling two or three miles and inquiring of people we met in the road, I became convinced that Holcomb had quit the road soon after leaving our camp and was striking for Mexico. I turned back in the direction of camp and followed the bank of the river. We had probably traveled a mile on our way home when we discovered Holcomb coming up the river towards us. He was about 400 yards away and discovered us about the same time. Turning his horse quickly, he made a dash for the river, where he struck at the bank was 10 feet high, but he never hesitated, and both man and horse went head first into the Rio Grande. The three men I had with me outran me, and when they reached the point where the fugitive had entered the water, they saw him swimming rapidly to the Mexican side and began firing at him. I ran up and ordered them to cease, telling them not to kill Holcomb, as he was in swimming water and helpless. Just at this moment, the swimmer struck shallow water, and I ordered him to come back or I would shoot him. I'll come if you won't let the boys kill me, he called back. I told him to hit swimming water quickly, which he did, and swam back to the American side. He was in his shirt sleeves and with his hat gone. His horse, meantime, had swam back to our side of the river. We all mounted and started back to camp, two of the rangers riding in front with Holcomb. I had not searched the prisoner because he was in his shirt sleeves. As we rode along, Holcomb reached into his shirt bosom and pulled out an old forty-five pistol and handed it to one of the boys, saying, Don't tell the sergeant I had this. The rangers at camp gave the prisoner some dry clothes and dinner, then put him in chains and under guard. Captain Baylor went on to El Paso, crossed the river to Juarez, and had Stallings arrested. In two days, we had him back in camp and chained to Holcomb. The captain then wrote to Bell County, Texas, as he had heard John Holcomb was wanted there for murder. Holcomb had a good horse, and he gave it to a lawyer in El Paso to get him out of his trouble. Of course, we had no warrant for Holcomb's arrest, and Judge Blacker ordered our prisoner brought before him. The county attorney made every effort to have Holcomb held while his lawyer tried his best to have the suspect released. The judge finally said he would hold Holcomb for one week and unless the officers found some evidence against him during the time, he would order the prisoner freed. It was nearly dark before we left El Paso on our return to Isleta, 12 miles distance. Holcomb had, in some manner, gotten two or three drinks of whiskey and was filling the liquor. I had one ranger with me leading the prisoner's horse. The road back to camp followed the river rather closely, and the country was very brushy all the way. As soon as we had gotten out of El Paso, Holcomb sat sideways on his horse, holding the pommel of his saddle with one hand and the cantle with the other, all the while facing toward Mexico. I ordered him to sit straight on his saddle, but he refused. We were riding in a gallop, and I believe he intended to jump from the horse and try to escape in the brush. I drew my pistol and hid it behind my leg. Although Holcomb had the cape of his overcoat thrown over his head, he discovered I had a pistol in my hand and began a tirade of abuse, declaring I had a cocked gun in my hand and was aching for a chance to kill him. I told him I believed from his actions 
he was watching for a chance to quit his horse and escape, and that I was prepared to prevent such a move. We reached camp safely and chained Holcomb to Stallings. These boys, although prisoners, were full of life and laughed and talked all the time. Holcomb played the violin quite well. We held the two suspects several days, and finally one night, one of the rangers came to my room and said, Sergeant, I believe there is something wrong with those prisoners. They are hollowing, singing, and playing the fiddle. I was busy on my monthly reports and told him to keep a sharp lookout. Before I retired, I would come and examine the prisoners. On examination, I found that while Holcomb played the violin, Stallings had sewn their shackles loose. They laughed when I discovered this and said that when the boys had all gone to bed, they intended to throw the pack saddle, which they used for a seat, on the guard's head and escape. We could get no evidence against John Holcomb, and the judge ordered his release. While a prisoner, Holcomb swore vengeance against myself and Prosecutor Neal. Mr. Neal heard of this threat, met Holcomb on the streets of El Paso afterward, and, jerking a small Derringer pistol from his pocket, shot Holcomb in the belly. Holcomb fell and begged for his life. He was not badly hurt, and as soon as he was well, he quit El Paso, went to Deming, New Mexico, where he stole a bunch of cattle. He drove the stolen herd to the mining camp of Lake Valley and there sold them. While he was in a saloon drinking and playing his fiddle, the owner of the cattle appeared with a shotgun and filled the thief full of buckshot. As he fell, Holcomb was heard to exclaim, Oh, boys, they have got me at last. Jim Stallings was sent to Fort Davis and placed in jail there from which he and half a dozen other criminals made their escape. A man named John Scott came to Captain Baylor, told a hard luck story, and asked to be taken into the service. Captain Baylor enlisted the applicant and fitted him out with horse, saddle, bridle, and armed him with gun and pistol, himself standing good for the entire equipment. Scott had not been in the service two months before he deserted. I was ordered to take two men, follow him, and bring him back. I overtook Scott up in the Canutillo near the line of New Mexico, and before I even ordered him to halt, he jumped down, sought refuge behind his horse, and opened fire on us with his Winchester. We returned the fire and killed his horse. He then threw down his gun and surrendered. We found the deserter had stopped in El Paso and gotten a bottle of whiskey. He was rather drunk when overtaken. Otherwise, he probably would not have made fight against three rangers. Captain Baylor took Scott's saddle, gun, and six-shooter away from him and kicked him out of camp, but was compelled to pay $75 for the horse that was killed. Another man, Chipman, deserted our company and stole a bunch of horses from some Mexicans down at Socorro. The Mexicans followed the trail out in the direction of Hueco Tanks, where it turned west and crossed the high range of mountains west of El Paso. The pursuers overtook Chipman with the stolen horses just on the line of New Mexico. The thief put up a fierce fight and killed two Mexicans, but was himself killed. Captain Baylor had a scout following the deserter, but the Mexicans got to him first and had the fight before our men arrived. 
However, the Ranger boys buried the body of Chipman where it fell. This chap had made a very good Ranger, and we all felt shocked when we learned he had stolen seven ponies and tried to get away with them single-handed. Yet another San Simone Valley rustler, Jack Bond, enlisted in the company. A band of rustlers and cow thieves were operating up in the Canutillo, 18 miles above El Paso, about the time he joined the command. I did my best to break up this band and made scout after scout up the river, but without success. Finally, Captain Baylor learned that Bond and another ranger, Lynn Peterson, were keeping the thieves posted as to the ranger's movements. The captain fired these two men out of the company, and within ten days, I had captured Frank Stevenson, the leader of the Canutillo gang, and broke up the nest of thieves. Stevenson was later sent to the penitentiary for 15 years. Bond and Peterson went to El Paso, stole Mayor M.C. Goffin's fine pair of carriage horses, and fled to New Mexico. Subsequently, Bond was killed at Deming by Deputy Sheriff Dan Tucker in an attempted arrest. Captain Roberts, Coldwell, or Lieutenant Reynolds would never have let such a bunch of crooks get into their companies, for they had to know something about a man before they would enlist him. However, there was some excuse for Baylor at the time he was on the Rio Grande. It was a long way from the center of population, and good men were hard to find. Then, too, it looked as if all the criminals in Texas had fled to New Mexico and Arizona, from which states they would ease back into the edge of Texas and join the Rangers. Captain Baylor was liberal in his views of men. They all looked good to him until proven otherwise. If there was a vacancy in the company, any man could get in. If they lacked equipment, the captain would buy the newcomer a horse, saddle, and arms, and then deduct the cost thereof from the man's first three months' pay. However, Baylor had generally to pay the bill himself. The captain also liked to keep his company recruited to the limit and this made enlistment in his command easy. In all the years I was with Captain Baylor, I never knew him to send a non-commissioned officer on a scout after Indians. He always commanded in person and always took with him every man in camp save one, who was left to guard it, for he liked to be as strong as possible on the battlefield. Captain Baylor never took much interest personally in following cattle thieves, horse thieves, murderers, and fugitives from justice. He left that almost entirely to me. Sometimes we would have as many as six or eight criminals chained up in camp at one time, but the captain would never come about them, for he could not bear to see anyone in trouble. His open, friendly personality endeared Baylor to the Mexicans from El Paso down the valley as far as Quitman. They were all his compadres and would frequently bring him venison, goat meat, and mutton. Always they showed him every courtesy in their power. Now, having freed the company of its undesirable recruits, we were once more a homogeneous force ready and anxious to perform our duty in protecting the frontier and bringing criminals to justice. Almost as soon as the last undesirable had been fired from Company A, we started on the scout that was to culminate in our last fight with the Apaches. End of chapter number 16, read by Kevin Waters, 
Spring Hill, Florida, August the 23rd, 2021.